For the Love of Reading, featuring selections from novels, complete short stories, poetry, and nonfiction, read for you by Linda Pack. It has come to my attention that there are vast sections of the population who are not acquainted with the brilliant literary confections known as nonsense. If you have not yet encountered the works of Edward Lear and Lewis Carroll, whether you are five years old or a hundred and five, it is never too late. Allow me to introduce you. The first of our presiding geniuses is Mr. Edward Lear, who was born in 1812, died in 1888, and he was known as the father of modern literary nonsense. He's often thought to have invented the limerick, but he did not. Lear adopted the limerick as a form for writing nonsense verse. Now, there were earlier limericks, but the earliest limerick of positive and authenticated date was found in an English public school in 1834, and I do wonder if it was found in a book or written on the wall. Because, you know, limericks have been appropriated as improper jokes, not by Mr. Lear, of course, but here is that most earliest positively authenticated limerick. There was a young man of St. Kitts who was very much troubled with fits. The eclipse of the moon threw him into a swoon when he tumbled and broke into bits. In 1846, Edward Lear published a book called A Book of Nonsense, which contains 112 of his original limericks. They are little gems, and each has Lear's own whimsical illustration for it. Lear was, in fact, a professional illustrator of birds, and he worked for the British Museum, among other things, and was sometimes compared with Audubon. You know, I'm sorry I can't show the little illustrations to you, because even though I hold the pictures right up to the microphone, it's it's sad. But it's a wonderful book, and it went through 19 printings during the author's lifetime. Here are five exemplary examples. There was an old man who supposed that the street door was partially closed, But some very large rats ate his coats and his hats, while that futile old gentleman dozed. There was a young lady whose eyes were unique as to colour and size. When she opened them wide, people all turned aside and started away in surprise. There was an old lady whose folly induced her to sit in a holly, whereupon by a thorn her dress being torn she quickly became melancholy there was a young lady whose bonnet came untied when the birds sat upon it but she said i don't care all the birds in the air are welcome to sit on my bonnet there was an old man in a tree who was horribly bored by a bee When they said, does it buzz? He replied, yes, it does. It's a regular brute of a bee. Oh, and just to pile nonsense on nonsense, here is just one more limerick 
this one in response to the one you just heard by Sir William Gilbert of Gilbert and Sullivan comic opera fame. <clears throat> there was an old man of St. Bees who was stung in the arm by a wasp. When they asked, does it hurt? He replied, no, it doesn't. But I thought all the while twas a hornet. You know, that cheers you right up, doesn't it? Lear is considered, of course, the father of modern literary nonsense. However, it is not because of his limericks. It is for his short stories and his drawings and his lyric poetry, such as The Jumblies and The Youngy Bungy Bow and The Dong with the Luminous Nose. In 1871, Edward Lear published a book called Nonsense Songs, Stories, Botany, and alphabets, which included his most famous nonsense poem, The Owl and the Pussycat. But since everybody knows that one, I shall read you this one. This is The Pobble Who Has No Toes. The Pobble Who Has No Toes had once as many as we. When they said, Some day you will lose them all, he replied, Fish fiddle dee dee. And his Aunt Jobiska made him drink lavender water tinged with pink. For she said, The world in general knows there's nothing so good for a pobble's toes. The pobble who has no toes swam across the Bristol Channel. But before he set out, he wrapped his nose in a piece of scarlet flannel. For his Aunt Jobiska said, no harm can come to his toes if his nose is warm, and it's perfectly known that a pobble's toes are safe, provided he minds his nose. The pobble swam fast and well, and when boats or ships came near him, he tinkledy binkledy winkled a bell so that all the world could hear him. And all the sailors and admirals cried when they saw him nearing the further side. He's gone to fish for his Aunt Jobiska's runcible cat with crimson whiskers. But before he touched the shore, the shore of the Bristol Channel, a sea-green porpoise carried away his wrapper of scarlet flannel. And when he came to observe his feet, formerly garnished with toes so neat. His face at once became forlorn on perceiving that all his toes were gone. And nobody ever knew from that dark day to the present whoso had taken the pobble's toes in a manner so far from pleasant. Whether the shrimps or crawfish grey or crafty mermaids stole them away, and nobody knew. And nobody knows how the pobble was robbed of his twice five toes. The pobble who has no toes was placed in a friendly bark, and they rowed him back and carried him up to his Aunt Jobiska's park. And she made him a feast at his earnest wish of eggs and buttercups fried in fish. And she said, It's a fact the whole world knows that pobbles are happier without their toes. And here is one of Edward Lear's recipes for nonsense cookery. 
which was published along with others for crumbobulus cutlets and gosky patties, which I believe must be eaten with runcible spoons. <clears throat> How to make an ombligance pie. Take four pounds, oh, say four and a half pounds, of fresh omblongusses and put them in a small pipkin. Cover them with water and boil them for eight hours incessantly, after which add two pints of new milk and proceed to boil for four hours more. When you have ascertained that the omblongusses are quite soft, take them out and place them in a wide pan, taking care to shake them well previously. Grate some nutmeg over the surface and cover them carefully with powdered gingerbread, curry powder, and a sufficient quantity of cayenne pepper. Remove the pan into the next room and place it on the floor. Bring it back again and let it simmer for three quarters of an hour. Shake the pan violently till all the omblongusses have become of a pale purple color. Then, having prepared the paste, insert the whole carefully, adding at the same time a small pigeon, two slices of beef, four cauliflowers, and any number of oysters. Watch patiently till the crust begins to rise, and add a pinch of salt from time to time. Serve up in a clean dish, and throw the whole out of the window as fast as possible. Such a delightful man. Indeed, as Edward Lear himself said, How pleasant to know Mr. Lear, who has written such volumes of stuff. Some think him ill-tempered and queer, but a few find him pleasant enough. His mind is concrete and fastidious. His nose is remarkably big. His visage is more or less hideous. His beard, it resembles a wig. He has ears and two eyes and ten fingers, leastways if you reckon two thumbs. Long ago he was one of the singers, but now he is one of the dumbs. He sits in a beautiful parlour with hundreds of books on the wall. He drinks a great deal of marsala, but never gets tipsy at all. He has many friends, laymen and clerical. Old Foss is the name of his cat. His body is perfectly spherical, and he weareth a runcible hat. When he walks in waterproof white, the children run after him so, calling out, He's gone out in his nightgown, that crazy old Englishman, oh! He weeps by the side of the ocean. He weeps on the top of a hill. He purchases pancakes and lotion and chocolate shrimps from the mill. He reads, but he cannot speak, Spanish. He cannot abide ginger beer. Ere the days of his pilgrimage vanish, how pleasant to know Mr. Lear. And now that we know Mr. Lear, allow me to introduce you to the true star of nonsense, the Reverend Charles Lutviga Dodgson, who was born in 1832 and lived to 1898, was a mathematician and a photographer, an inventor, and an Anglican cleric who lived most of his life as a scholar and teacher in Oxford, England. 
1865, he wrote and published Alice's Adventures in Wonderland under the pen name Lewis Carroll, which I just noticed is his first two names, Charles Ludwiga, translated into their English equivalents and switched around. Let us begin at the beginning of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. In chapter one, titled Down the Rabbit Hole, Alice, a seven-year-old girl, is feeling bored and drowsy while sitting on a river bank with her elder sister. She notices a talking, clothed white rabbit with a pocket watch run past. She follows it down a rabbit hole and falls a long way down. At the bottom of the hole, she drinks from a bottle labeled Drink Me and becomes very tiny. Then she finds a tiny cake with the words Eat Me, beautifully marked in currants. Well, I'll eat it, said Alice, and see if it makes me grow larger. So she does, and it does. Curiouser and curiouser. Now I'm opening out like the largest telescope that ever was. Goodbye, feet. For when she looked down at her feet, they seemed to be almost out of sight. They were getting so far off. Oh, my poor little feet. I wonder who will put your shoes and stockings for you on now, dear. I'm sure I shan't be able. I shall be a great deal too far off to trouble myself about you. You must manage the best way you can. But I must be kind to them, thought Alice, or perhaps they won't walk the way I want them to go. Oh, dear, what nonsense I'm talking. In the course of the next five chapters, Alice changes her height several times, and she meets many strange and interesting creatures. Finally, on the advice of a hookah-smoking caterpillar, she nibbles on a mushroom and succeeds in bringing herself to her usual height. And then, in chapter six, she was a little startled by seeing the Cheshire cat sitting on a bough of a tree a few yards off. The cat only grinned when it saw Alice. It looked good-natured, she thought. Still, it had very long claws and a great many teeth, so she felt that it ought to be treated with respect. Cheshire Puss, she began rather timidly, as she did not know at all whether it would like the name. However, it only grinned a little wider. Come, it's pleased so far, thought Alice, and she went on. Would you tell me, please, which way I ought to go from here? That depends a good deal on where you want to get to, said the cat. I don't much care where, then it doesn't matter which way you go, said the cat. So long as I get somewhere, oh, you're sure to do that, if only you walk long enough. Alice felt that this could not be denied, so she tried another question. What sort of people live about here? In that direction said the cat, waving its right paw round, lives a hatter, and in that direction, waving the other paw, lives a March hare. Visit either you like. They're both mad. But I don't want to go among mad people, 
Alice remarked. Oh, you can't help that, said the cat. We're all mad here. I'm mad. You're mad. She had not gone much farther before she came in sight of the house of the March Hare. She thought it must be the right house because the chimneys were shaped like ears and the roof was thatched with fur. So she walked up to it rather timidly, saying to herself, Suppose it should be raving mad after all. Chapter 7 A Mad Tea Party there was a table set out under a tree in front of the house, and the March Hare and the Hatter were having tea at it. A Dormouse was sitting between them, fast asleep, and the other two were using it as a cushion, resting their elbows on it and talking over its head. Very uncomfortable for the Dormouse, thought Alice, only as it's asleep, I suppose it doesn't mind. The table was a large one, but the three were all crowded together at one corner of it. "'No room! No room!' they cried out when they saw Alice coming. "'There's plenty of room,' said Alice indignantly, and she sat down in a large armchair at one end of the table. "'Have some wine?' the March Hare said in an encouraging tone. Alice looked all around the table, but there was nothing on it but tea. "'I don't see any wine,' she remarked. "'There isn't any,' said the March Hare. "'Then it wasn't very civil of you to offer it,' said Alice angrily. "'It wasn't very civil of you to sit down without being invited,' said the March Hare. "'I didn't know it was your table. It's laid for a great many more than three. "'Your hair wants cutting,' said the Hatter. "'He'd been looking at Alice for some time with great curiosity, and this was his first speech.' "'You should learn not to make personal remarks,' Alice said with some severity. "'It's very rude.' "'The Hatter opened his eyes very wide on hearing this, but all he said was, "'Why is a raven like a writing desk?' "'Come, we shall have some fun now,' thought Alice. "'I'm glad they've begun asking riddles.' "'I believe I can guess that,' she added aloud. "'Do you mean you can find out the answer to it?' said the March Hare. Exactly so, said Alice. Then you should say what you mean, the March Hare went on. I do. At least, at least I mean what I say. That's the same thing, you know. Not the same thing a bit, said the Hatter. You might as well say that I see what I eat is the same thing as I eat what I see. You might as well say, added the March Hare, that I like what I get is the same thing as I get what I like. You might just as well say, added the Dormouse, who seemed to be talking in his sleep, that I breathe when I sleep is the same thing as I sleep when I breathe. It is the same thing with you, said the Hatter, and here the conversation dropped and the party sat silent for a minute, while Alice thought over all she could remember about ravens and writing-desks, which wasn't much. The Hatter was the first to break the silence. "'What day of the month is it?' he said, turning to Alice. He had taken his watch out of his pocket and was looking at it uneasily, shaking it every now and then and holding it to his ear. Alice considered a little and then said, 
the fourth. Two days wrong, sighed the hatter. I told you butter wouldn't suit the works, he added, looking angrily at the March Hare. It was the best butter, the March Hare meekly replied. Yes, but some crumbs must have got in it as well, the hatter grumbled. You shouldn't have put it in with the bread knife. The March Hare took the watch and looked at it gloomily. Then he dipped it into his cup of tea and looked at it again. But all he could think of nothing better to say than his first remark. It was the best butter, you know. The Dormouse is asleep again, said the Hatter, and he poured a little hot tea upon its nose. The Dormouse shook its head impatiently and said, without opening its eyes, Of course, of course, just when I was going to remark myself. Have you guessed the riddle yet? the Hatter said, turning to Alice again. No, I give it up. What's the answer? I haven't the slightest idea. Nor I, said the March Hare. Alice sighed wearily. I think you might do something better with the time, she said, than waste it in asking riddles that have no answers. If you knew time as well as I do, said the Hatter, you wouldn't talk about wasting it. It's him. I don't know what you mean, said Alice. Of course you don't, the Hatter said, tossing his head contemptuously. I dare say you never even spoke to time. Perhaps not, Alice cautiously replied. But I know I have to beat time when I learn music. Oh, that accounts for it. He won't stand beating. Now, if you only kept on good terms with him, he'd do almost anything you liked with the clock. Suppose, for instance, it were nine o'clock in the morning, just time to begin lessons. You'd only have to whisper a hint to time, and round goes the clock in a twinkling. Half past one, time for dinner. That? "'Would be grand, certainly,' said Alice thoughtfully. "'But then I, I shouldn't be hungry for it, you know.' "'Not at first, perhaps, but you could keep it half past one as long as you liked. "'Is that the way you manage?' "'The Hatter shook his head mournfully. "'Not I. Time and I quarrelled last March, "'just before he went mad, you know,' pointing with his teaspoon at the March Hare. It was at the great concert given by the Queen of Hearts, and I had to sing, <coughs> twinkle, twinkle, little bat, how I wondered what you're at. You know the song, perhaps? I've heard something like it, said Alice. It goes on, you know, in this way. Up above the world you fly, like a tea tray in the sky. A twinkle, a twinkle. Here the dormouse shook itself and began singing in its sleep. Twinkle, 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 and went on so long that they had to pinch it to make it stop. Well, I'd hardly finished the first verse, said the Hatter, when the Queen jumped up and bawled out, He's murdering the time off with his head. How dreadfully savage, exclaimed Alice. 
And ever since that, he won't do a thing I ask. It's always six o'clock now. A bright idea came into Alice's head. Is that the reason so many tea things are put out here? Yes, that's it. It's always tea time, and we've no time to wash things between whiles. Then you keep moving round, I suppose. Exactly so, as the things get used up. But what happens when you come to the beginning again? Alice ventured to ask. Suppose we change the subject, the March Hare interrupted. I'm getting tired of this. I vote the young lady tells us a story. I'm afraid I don't know one, said Alice, rather alarmed at the proposal. Then the Dormouse shall, they both cried. Wake up, Dormouse! And they pinched it on both sides at once. The Dormouse slowly opened his eyes. I wasn't asleep. I heard every word you fellows were saying. Tell us a story, said the March Hare. Yes, please do, pleaded Alice. And be quick about it, added the Hatter, or you'll be asleep again before it's done. Once upon a time there were three little sisters, the Dormouse began, and their names were Elsie, Lacey, and Tilly, and they lived at the bottom of a well. Take some more tea, the March Hare said to Alice, very earnestly. I've had nothing yet, Alice replied in an offended tone, so I can't take more. You mean you can't take less, said the Hatter. It's very easy to take more than nothing. Nobody asked your opinion, said Alice. <laughs> Who's making personal remarks now? The Hatter asked triumphantly. The Dormouse went on. And so these three little sisters, they were learning to draw, you know. I want a clean cup, interrupted the Hatter. Let's all move one place on. He moved on as he spoke, and the Dormouse followed him, and the March Hare moved into the Dormouse's place, and Alice rather unwillingly took the place of the March Hare. The Hatter was the only one who got any advantage from the change, and Alice was a good deal worse off than before, as the March Hare had just upset the milk jug into his plate. They were learning to draw, the Dormouse went on, yawning and rubbing its eyes, for it was getting very sleepy. And they drew all manner of things, everything that begins with an M. Why with an M? said Alice. Why not? said the March Hare. The Dormouse had closed its eyes by this time and was going off into a doze, but on being pinched by the Hatter, it woke up again with a little shriek and went on. It begins with an M, such as mouse traps and the moon and memory and muchness. You know, you say things are much of a muchness. Did you ever see such a thing as a drawing of a muchness? Really? Now you Ask me, said Alice, very much confused. I don't think... Then you shouldn't talk, said the Hatter. This piece of rudeness was more than Alice could bear. She got up in great disgust and walked off. The Dormouse fell asleep instantly, and neither of the others took the least notice of her going, though she looked back once or twice 
half hoping they would call after her. The last time she saw them, they were trying to put the Dormouse into the teapot. And that was from Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. But I must say that if I was stranded on a desert island, without a doubt, the book I want most with me is Through the Looking Glass and What Alice Found There, which Lewis Carroll published in 1871. In Chapter 1 of Through the Looking Glass, which is called The Looking Glass House, Alice wonders what the world is like on the other side of a mirror's reflection. She pokes at a mirror that's hanging on the wall and discovers, to her surprise, that she is able to step through it to an alternative world. There was a book lying near Alice on the table, and she turned over the leaves to find some part of it that she could read. For it's all in some language I don't know, she said to herself. She puzzled over this for some time, but at last a bright thought struck her. Why, it's a looking-glass book, of course. And if I hold it up to a glass, the words will all go the right way again. This was the poem that Alice read. Jabberwocky. Twas brillig, and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All mimsy were the borogoves, and the momraths outgrabe. Beware the jabberwock, my son, the jaws that bite, the claws that catch. Beware the jubjub bird and shun the frumious bandersnatch. He took his vorpal sword in hand. Long time the manxome foe he sought. So rested he by the tum-tum tree and stood a while in thought. And, as in uffish thought he stood, the jabberwock with eyes of flame came whiffling through the tulgy wood and burbled as it came. One, two, one, two, and through and through the vorpal blade went snicker-snack. He left it dead, and with its head he went galumphing back. And hast thou slain the jabberwock? Come to my arms, my beamish boy. O frabjous day, callow, callay, he chortled in his joy. Twas brillig. And the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All mimsy were the borogoves, and the momraths outgrabe. It seems very pretty, Alice said when she'd finished it, but it's rather hard to understand. You see, she didn't like to confess, even to herself, that she couldn't make it out at all. Somehow it seems to fill my head with ideas, only I don't exactly know what they are. In Chapter 2, Alice visits the Garden of Live Flowers, where she meets the Red Chess Queen, who explains that this country is laid out as a chessboard, and if Alice proceeds to the eighth rank, she will become a queen. In Chapter 3, 
She meets looking-glass insects like the bread and butterfly and the rocking horsefly. In Chapter 4, she meets Tweedledum and Tweedledee, and we will visit with them a little later and hear the poem that they recite for Alice. In Chapter 5, we hear the white chess queen say, in reply to Alice saying that one can't believe in possible things, I dare say you haven't had much practice. When I was your age, I always did it for half an hour a day. Why, sometimes I believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. And so we arrive at chapter six, where she meets Humpty Dumpty. And Humpty Dumpty said, Here's a question for you. How old did you say you were? Alice made a short calculation and said, Seven years and six months. Wrong, Humpty Gumpty declared triumphantly. You never said a word like it. I, I thought you meant, how old are you? Alice explained. If I'd meant that, I would have said it, said Humpty Dumpty. Seven years and six months, <laughs> an uncomfortable sort of age. Now, if you'd asked my advice, I'd have said leave off at seven, but it's too late now. I never ask advice about growing, Alice said indignantly. Too proud? Alice felt even more indignant at this suggestion. I mean that one can't help growing older. <laughs> one can't, perhaps, but two can. With proper assistance, you might have left off at seven. What a beautiful belt you've got on, Alice suddenly remarked. They'd had quite enough of the subject of age, she thought. At least, she corrected herself on second thoughts, a beautiful cravat, I should have said. No, a belt. I mean, I beg your pardon, she added in dismay, for Humpty Dumpty looked thoroughly offended, and she began to wish she hadn't chosen the subject. If I only knew, she thought to herself, which was neck and which was waist. It is a most provoking thing, he said at last, when a person doesn't know a cravat from a belt. I, I know it's very ignorant of me, Alice said in so humble a tone that Humpty Dumpty relented. It's a cravat, child, and a beautiful one, as you say. It's a present from the White King and Queen, there now. Is it really? said Alice, quite pleased to find she'd chosen a good subject after all. They gave it me for an unbirthday present. I beg your pardon, Alice said with a puzzled air. I'm not offended, said Humpty Dumpty. I mean... What is an unbirthday present? A present given when it isn't your birthday, of course. Alice considered a little. I like birthday presents best, she said at last. <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about, cried Humpty Dumpty. How many days are there in a year? Three hundred and sixty-five. And how many birthdays have you? One. And if you take one from 365, what remains? 364, of course. As I was saying, that shows that there are 364 days when you might get on birthday presents, 
certainly, and only one for birthday presents, you know. <laughs> There's glory for you. I don't know what you mean by glory, Alice said. Humpty Dumpty smiled contemptuously. Of course you don't, till I tell you. I meant there's a nice knock-down argument for you. But glory doesn't mean a nice knock-down argument, Alice objected. <laughs> when I use a word, Humpty Dumpty said in a rather scornful tone, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. The question is whether you can make words mean so many different things. The question is, which is to be master, that's all. <laughs> They've a temper, some of them, particularly verbs. They're the proudest adjectives you can do anything with, but not verbs. However, I can manage the whole lot of them. Impenetrability, that's what I say. Would you tell me, please? said Alice, what that means. Now you talk like a reasonable child, said Humpty Dumpty, looking very much pleased. I meant by impenetrability that we've had enough of this subject and it'll be just as well if you'd mean to mention what you mean to do next, as I don't suppose you mean to stop here all the rest of your life. That's a great deal to make one word mean. When I make a word do a lot of work like that, I always pay it extra. Ah, oh, you should see em come round me of a Saturday night for to get their wages, you know. Alice didn't venture to ask what he paid them with, and so you see, I can't tell you. You seem very clever at explaining words, sir, said Alice. Would you kindly tell me the meaning of a poem called Jabberwocky? Let's hear it said Humpty Dumpty. I can explain all the poems that were ever invented and a good many that haven't been invented just yet. This sounded very hopeful. So Alice repeated the first verse. Twas Brillig and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe or mimsy were the borgoves and the momraths outgrabe. Oh, that's enough to begin with. Humpty Dumpty interrupted. There are plenty of odd words there. Mm. Brillig means four o'clock in the afternoon, the time when you begin broiling things for dinner. That'll do very well, said Alice. And slithy, where slithy means lithe and slimy. Lithe is the same as active. You see, it's like a portmanteau. There are two meanings packed up into one word. I see it now, Alice remarked thoughtfully. And what are toves? Well, toves are something like badgers. They're something like lizards. And they're something like corkscrews. They must be very curious-looking creatures. They are that said Humpty Dumpty. They also make their nests under sundials. They also live on cheese. And what's to gyre and to gimble? To gyre is to go round and round like a gyroscope. To gimble is to make owls like a gimlet. And the wabe is the grass plot round the sundial, I suppose, said Alice, surprised at her own ingenuity. Of course it is. It's called a wabe, you know, because it goes a long way before it and a long way behind it. 
and a long way beyond it on each side, Alice added. Exactly so. Then there's Mimsy is flimsy and miserable. There's another portmanteau for you. And a Borgove is a thin, shabby-looking bird with its feathers sticking out all round, something like a live mop. And then Momraths, said Alice. I'm afraid I'm giving you a great deal of trouble. Well, Rath is a sort of a green pig, but Moam I'm not certain about. I think it's short for from home, meaning that they'd lost their way, you know. And what does outgrabe mean? Well, outgrabing is something between bellowing and whistling, with a kind of a sneeze in the middle. However, you'll hear it done, maybe, down in the wood yonder, and when you've heard it once, you'll be quite content. Is that all? Alice timidly asked. That's all, said Humpty Dumpty. Goodbye. But this was rather sudden, Alice thought. But after such a very strong hint that she ought to be going, she felt it would hardly be civil to stay. So she got up and held out her hand. Goodbye. Till we meet again, she said as cheerfully as she could. Lewis Carroll invented the term portmanteau word. Portmanteau is the French word for suitcase, which is also a portmanteau word. You know, a case where you put your suit is a suitcase. Also, portmanteau words you may be familiar with are hmm, hangry, apple teeny, travelocity, jazzercise, Brexit, and smog. The Alice books are the origins of many, 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 many words and phrases that have come into common English usage. In compiling this program, I have fallen down the rabbit hole dozens of times. And as the material became curiouser and curiouser, I was astonished to learn that there is an American hip-hop dance crew called the Jabberwockies. I will state categorically that a heaping helping of nonsense every day will improve your life. It is everywhere. It is eternal. So I will leave you with this to your good health from Chapter 4 of Through the Looking Glass. Tweedledum and Tweedledee recite for Alice the poem The Walrus and the Carpenter. The sun was shining on the sea, shining with all his might. He did his very best to make the billows smooth and bright. And this was odd, because it was the middle of the night. The moon was shining sulkily, because she thought the sun had got no business to be there after the day was done. It's very rude of him, she said, to come and spoil the fun. The sea was wet as wet could be. The sands were dry as dry. You could not see a cloud because no cloud was in the sky. No birds were flying overhead. There were no birds to fly. The walrus and the carpenter were walking close at hand. They wept like 
anything to see such quantities of sand. If this were only cleared away, they said, it would be grand. If seven mates with seven mops swept it for half a year, do you suppose, the walrus said, that they could get it clear? I doubt it, said the carpenter, and shed a bitter tear. Oh, oysters, come and walk with us, the walrus did beseech. A pleasant walk, a pleasant talk along the briny beach. We cannot do with more than four to give a hand to each. The eldest oyster looked at him, but never a word he said. The eldest oyster winked his eye and shook his heavy head, meaning to say he did not choose to leave the oyster bed. But four young oysters hurried up, all eager for the treat. Their coats were brushed, their faces washed, their shoes were clean and neat. And this was odd because, you know, they hadn't any feet. Four other oysters followed them, and yet another four, and thick and fast they came at last, and more and more and more, all hopping through the frothy waves and scrambling to the shore. The walrus and the carpenter walked on a mile or so, and then they rested on a relk, conveniently low, and all the little oysters stood and waited in a row. The time has come, the walrus said, to talk of many things, of shoes and ships and sealing wax, of cabbages and kings, and why the sea is boiling hot and whether pigs have wings. But wait a bit, the oysters cried, before we have our chat, for some of us are out of breath and all of us are fat. No worry, said the carpenter. Well, they thanked him much for that. A loaf of bread, the walrus said, is what we chiefly need. Pepper and vinegar, besides, are very good indeed. And now, if you're ready, oysters, dear, we can begin to feed. But not on us, the oysters cried, turning a little blue. After such kindness, that would be a dismal thing to do. The night is fine, the walrus said. Do you admire the view? It was so kind of you to come, and you are very nice. The carpenter said nothing, but cut us another slice. I wish you were not quite so deaf. I've had to ask it twice. It seems a shame, the walrus said, to play them such a trick. After we've brought them out so far and made them trot so quick. The carpenter said nothing but... The butter's spread too thick. I weep for you, the walrus said. I deeply sympathize. With sobs and tears, he sorted out those of the largest size, holding a pocket handkerchief before his streaming eyes. Oh, oysters, said the carpenter, you've had a pleasant run. Shall we be trotting home again? But answer came there none. And that was scarcely odd, because they'd eaten every one. Suddenly, Alice heard something that sounded to her like the puffing of a large steam engine in the wood near them. 
It's only the Red King snoring, said Tweedledee. Come and look at him. I'm afraid he'll catch cold with lying on the damp grass, said Alice, who was a very thoughtful little girl. He's dreaming now, said Tweedledee. And what do you think he's dreaming about? Alice said, nobody can guess that. Why about you? Tweedledee exclaimed, clapping his hands triumphantly. And if he left off dreaming about you, where do you suppose you'd be? Where I am now, of course, said Alice. Not you. You'd be nowhere. Why, you're only a sort of a thing in his dream. If that there king was to wake, added Tweedledum, you'd go out, bang, just like a candle. I shouldn't, Alice exclaimed indignantly. Besides, if I'm only a sort of thing in his dream, what are you, I should like to know? Ditto, said Tweedledee. Ditto, ditto, said Tweedledee. He shouted this so loud that Alice couldn't help saying, Hush, you'll be waking him, I'm afraid, if you make so much noise. Well, it's no use you talking about waking him said Tweedledum when you're only one of the things in his dream you know very well you're not real I am real said Alice and began to cry you won't make yourself a little bit realer by crying Tweedledee remarked there's nothing to cry about if I wasn't real Alice said half laughing through her tears it all seemed so ridiculous i shouldn't be able to cry i hope you don't suppose that those are real tears tweedledee interrupted in a tone of great contempt i know they're talking nonsense alice thought to herself and it's foolish to cry about it. And that is all for this edition of For the Love of Reading, Utter Nonsense. The material read on this edition of For the Love of Reading was selected, reviewed, and edited by Linda Pack and performed by Linda Pack. The program was engineered by Alicia Bales. This program is archived and available for online listening at kzyx.org, along with all of the shows aired on For the Love of Reading.
Mendocino County Remembered. Oral histories collected and published under the auspices of the Mendocino Historical Society for the American Bicentennial in 1976. Read by Linda Pack. Today, from Philo, the recollections of Leo Sanders, born 1903. A nursery rhyme in boont. Cirque, cirque, the Tudors, tweeds, stole a borp and shied. They gormed the bork and dreeked we cirque, and he piked plenty green-eyed. Say it in English now. Tom, Tom, the piper's son, stole a pig, and away he ran. The pig was eat, and Tom was beat, and Tom went crying down the street. You see, Boontling is a shortened language, and that's why this poem that I recited seems so much shorter when said in Boontling. There used to be a man here in Anderson Valley that said we could say a whole hour's conversation in just a few words when we were really harping Boont. Some old Boonters harped Kai Belagroon. Now this would mean that the coyote went below the ground, and it's spoken in two words. I had a classmate that lived right at the district line between the Anderson Polling District and the Philo Polling District. On weekends, he would go to Boonville and spend some time in town, and then on Monday morning, he'd have a new boont word for me. He kept me coached on that, so I was learning bootling while I was coming up through grammar school. You see, in the early days, the rivalry between Philo and Boonville was so great that the Philo people thought that they would be disgraced if they tried to copy anything that Boonville did. So, they never learned to speak kabootling at all. In fact, they belittled it and made all sorts of fun of it. And then the boonters, on the other hand, didn't want the people of Philo to speak it. Of course, when this friend of mine and I were growing up, we didn't let that bother us at all. I suppose the rivalry between the towns was mainly due to baseball games. You see, in the early days, each one of those communities had a ball team of its own. And they used to play some pretty close games. You know how people were in olden times. They loved rough and tumbles, and they were always arguing with the umpires, and sometimes people had fist fights. So that caused, in some cases, animosity between the people of the two different communities. They called us pole ecoites, and I don't know as they referred to us as people from the Blue Jay region back in those days or not. I think that Blue Jay region was the name that was attached to this area later on. See, they used to haul hay that was not baled just loose along the county road, and there were some redwood limbs that hung over the road and would scratch off some of the hay. Then the Blue Jays would fly down in the road, and that's how they got the name Blue Jay region. Anyway, polikos sounds like it has a political connotation. Polikers. They just eke out by one or two votes a win, you see. So the people from Pol Eco were Republicans, and those from Boonville were mostly Democrats. The early settlers of the southern end of the valley, or the southeastern end, were really from the south. And so it happened that the people who settled down in this part of the valley, around Philo and Wendling, were from the northern part of the United States. Oh, gee, Mom, will you recite Old Mother Hubbard in Boont for us? <laughs> the old dame piked to the chigrel nook for gorms for her ball balgemer. 
the gorms had shied, the nook was strung, and the ball balgemer had neemer. You've been listening to the recollections of Leo Sanders. Mendocino County Remembered is produced by Mary Eigner and Linda Pack for KZYXMZ. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can go to kzyx.org to find more shows and content like this one. While there, you can stream us live or check out our jukebox. And if you like what you hear, consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. We are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Woolets and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening.